0: Every successful business, big or small, depends on the skills and motivation of their workforce. And in today's highly competitive world of business, every employee counts. And that's why we're here, to help you find better. Welcome to the Monster Hiring Podcast, featuring expert advice on how to hire, lead, and motivate your workforce, and keep yourself motivated. I'm Connie Blazik, editor of the Monster Resource Center. Thanks for tuning in. I invite you to visit our library of resources at hiring.monster.com. How authentic is your company? In this Monster podcast, we hear about the advantages of authenticity and how it can help you design the best company on earth. Stay tuned. Once upon a time, highly successful organizations had highly developed work cultures that attracted like minded workers. That model, however, no longer holds true. Today, an increasing number of talented people are looking for something more personal, a workplace that embraces diversity, that reflects their values, and allows for a greater level of expression. As leadership experts Rob Joffe and Gareth Jones point out in their new book, Why Should Anyone Work Here? It's essential that companies, big and small, transform themselves into authentic organizations in order to attract and cultivate a productive workforce. Their new book, published by Harvard Business Review Press, examines the six attributes that enable organizations to become more authentic. And here to talk about the book's findings is author Gareth Jones. He's speaking with us from London. He's a fellow of the Center for Management Development at the London Business School. Gareth, thank you for joining us.
1: My pleasure, Connie. Thank you.
0: Can you recite the six attributes of organizational authenticity? Have you committed them to memory?
1: I can. Of course I can. But it might be useful if I tell you quite how we got to them.
0: That'd be great. Would that be helpful? That would be wonderful.
1: Okay. Well, we wrote a book uh, a while ago um, about leadership called Why Should Anyone Be Led by You? How to Become an Authentic Leader. And it's a book whose message has resonated um, widely uh, all over the world, actually. However, clever people have started saying to us, well, okay, Gareth and Rob, I get this message. I'll tell you what, I'll be authentic when I work in an authentic organization. But since I don't, I walk in one that's highly political, um, doesn't always tell the truth, and so on. I'm not going to be authentic. I'm going to be the same political player that I've been for the last 15 years. So we started to ask about five years ago, mainly executives, but not exclusively executives all over the world. Well, okay, you tell us what would an authentic organization look like? And the answer came through fairly strongly, actually. And we call it the organization of your dreams, which is a a mnemonic. So D, difference beyond diversity. I want to work in an organization where I can be myself. Can I be myself at work? R, radical honesty. Tell me the truth before someone else does. E, extra value. Add value. Don't exploit me. So develop me. And, and in the book, we say, well, okay, this is exactly what we'd have expected of McKinsey and John Hopkins Hospital and so on. The elite organizations have always been very good at doing this. Um. But actually, you take an organization like McDonald's, which I know always has a fairly mixed press in the U.S. over issues like pay, but it does a tremendous job at adding value to often low-skilled young people and giving them training. So it's not just elite organizations. A, authenticity. Mean what you say and say what you mean. Don't change the mission statement every three years, because there's widespread cynicism about that. M, meaning. I want a meaningful job in an organization which itself has meaning. And then finally, and perhaps the hardest, S, simple rules. I want to live and work in an organization which has clear, agreed, simple rules and not a kind of fog of bureaucracy. So that's where we got the organization of your dreams from. And by the way, this is... We're not starry-eyed dreamers about this. We we really believe that this is a recipe for long-term sustainable success. And in a way, this is a rather simple argument. If you can attract, retain, and develop the best people, and broadly speaking, you're doing the right things with your customers, you probably do really well.
0: So, how can can you provide some examples of how companies are breaking their habitual patterns and and default to conformity? That, um, that is improving their business and pr- improving profitability?
1: Yeah, I'll give you a quick example. It's from. I have to say this was one of my favorite companies when we did the research. It's um, Arab, the consulting engineers, and um, the, the <laughs> they recruited 50 mathematicians. And we asked the, I think he was then the chairman, why did you recruit the 50 mathematicians? And he said, I don't know yet. I think they'll find something useful to do. And sure enough, when the Millennium Bridge in London started to wobble after it was built, it was the mathematicians who found the causes of the problem and found a solution. And by the way, because they're a clever company, they then sold that solution to wobbly bridges all over the world. Um, So it's It's a nice example about... Uh, they have they, said to us, so I think we quote this in the book, we, we like to recruit people who don't quite fit in. Mm. And by the way, their, their appraisal system, their kind of performance management system says, you know, it doesn't have five objectives. It says, if you have five objectives, you know what? You never get the sixth. You never get the sixth. Right. We just want to recruit bright people and create an environment in which they can do great stuff. In which they can do great stuff. And I think that's probably how you start to build great organizations. Or I remember, this is a story from a chief executive who I very much admire, Lars Rabian Sorensen, who's the chief executive of uh, Novo Nordisk, which is the world's largest uh, supplier of insulin. And I suppose, arguably, one of the most successful capitalist enterprises of the last 20 years. So it's done spectacularly well. And he, he flew to California to close down a research facility there. And he called the town hall and he explained to people why this research was not going to continue and why they decided to stop it. And guess what? When he finished speaking, they applauded him. They applauded him for telling the truth.
0: Mm.
1: For telling the truth. Isn't that interesting?
0: It is. Well, people respect when you extend yourself enough to... Provide more detail, and I think that part of the point of the book is that employees are the first ones to do that with the organization that they work for. Absolutely. You know, you talk about the the task for leadership within authentic organizations to acquire the skills needed to to lead in this new model, and uh, it was curious. I, I I wrote down the description of the new task of leadership which is to orchestrate or create environments where others can follow their own authentic obsession. And th- that ah,
1: absolutely. <laughs> isn't that great? <laughs> that, sounded, that
0: sounded a lot like... Remind, the first thing that came to mind was Studio 54, the nightclub back in its heyday.
1: <laughs> right. Right. Well, actually, I was going to say this. It slightly reminded me of... Um, well, I used to be in the music business. I used to work for, for Polygram when it, was, when it was the world's greatest record company. And I got quite good at predicting how successful a record label would be without looking at the numbers by just hanging around. And, you know, there were certain things you'd look for, like, did the artists like to come to the record company? Did the artists kind of hang around? Um, What time did the A&R guys get to the office? I mean, you don't really want them in the office at half past eight in the morning. You want them to come in at 10 o'clock because they probably should have been in the clubs till five o'clock in the morning. Um, you want the marketing director's office to be full of kind of gimmicks and gizmos and T-shirts and, and, and you know, gimmicks that will, that will help to position an artist. You want the finance director to have his office right next door to the chief executive so that they have some idea of what's going on. You know, you could start to, to get a feel about what a great record company would look like. And, of course, what, what makes a great record company is you create an environment in which people do creative things. They experiment. They allow creative people to do good stuff. There's a a story um, about when Chris Blackwell signed Bob Marley, and um, he flew Bob Marley and the Whalers to London, and... Um, Chris Blackwell never hired studios. He always owned his own studios. So there was never a deadline. You know, there's, there's no, you've got to make an album in, in, in a week or you've got to make an album in 10 days. You have the studio as long as it takes to make a great album. And um, Bob Mully's wife said, and by the way, he gave them 5,000 pounds or dollars, I can't remember which, without a contract. And his, Bob Mully's wife said, Chris was so nice, we decided we'd better do something great. Mm. And that was the start of the Bob Marley phenomena. And it's a bit like, I think, even in science-based companies like pharmaceutical companies. So even big pharma companies like GlaxoSmithKline, Novartis, and so on. Guess what? Things will fail. Drugs will fail in the final stages of clinical trials. The question is, have you created an environment in which people will go on trying to find a cure for cancer, HIV, dementia, diabetes, and so on. Have you created an environment in which people are so driven by the significance of what it is that they do, that even when a drug fails, they go, okay, what's next? What's next? And I think that's been a characteristic of great creative companies for a long time.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. I think it's very difficult, though. The drumbeat of profit is, is paramount, in especially larger companies. And
1: Well, I think it's the drumbeat of quarterly reporting, mm-hmm. actually. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can't find a cure for cancer in three months. Uh, it may take many years before we get a breakthrough in dementia. So if you're going to measure the performance of the big pharma companies every three months, then they're not going to find a cure for dementia. And by the way, that will probably bankrupt most of the health systems in the Western world. So we need to find a way of creating space for people to do wonderful, creative stuff. And that's what an organization of your dreams allows for. That's why diversity matters so much. Um, See, creativity increases with diversity and declines with sameness. Mm -hmm. And many, many, many businesses, not just the obvious ones, increasingly require creativity and innovation.
0: And when we talk about, when we say diversity, can you define that a little bit?
1: Well, I mean, I've been involved with this myself practically when I was the HR Director of the BBC. But, of course, it's important to measure things like gender, race, sexual orientation, age, and so on. All of those things are really important. But, of course, they're really just measures of something more fundamental underneath that. We want to recruit people who have differing perspectives who are going to bring new ways of looking at the world to our organization. And that's how you you, know, you, you you get cognitive conflict, you get the clash of ideas, and out of the clash of ideas, you get creativity and innovation. Whereas if we just recruit people who are going to fit in, then we're going to get a decline in innovation and creativity.
0: Mm-hmm. You, s- you talk about radical honesty as requiring open communication. That means... Allowing people to bring you bad news that they feel safe enough to do that. Can you talk about that?
1: After the the Gulf oil spill, BP completely lost control of the social media. Um, And that's severely damaged their reputational capital. So, what have we learned about reputational capital in the last 10 years? It's more important than we thought, and it's more fragile. It's more fragile. So this imperative for uh, honesty is, is not a frill. It's not the kind of froth on a cappuccino. This is a real business driver because if you don't tell the truth, someone else will. Someone else will.
0: Hmm. And it sounds like in order to help your employees understand the context of, of you know, what is uh, good or bad in terms of how the company is doing its work, it's really, it really is about clarity of the company values. Of that Absolutely. value proposition. And, and, you
1: know, that can be a mixture of good news and bad news, you know. Uh, we had five drugs in development. Great. Four of them have just failed in the last stages of clinical trials. Okay, so now we know the scale of the challenge we're facing. Um, much, much better. Much better. We, we've got a little thing that we talk about. You know, you, this has probably happened to you, Connie. You, you get to the airport, and it says flight delayed. Do you know what makes passengers most annoyed? Hmm not knowing why the flight's delayed. If you say to the passengers, the flight's delayed because one of the engines isn't working, do you know what the passengers say? Good, I'm glad you delayed it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But that feeling of constantly looking up at the the flashing notice board and it just says, Boston flight delayed, Boston flight delayed, that drives customers potty. And it's true for employees too. Because as you know, organizations are often awash with gossip and rumor Employees have a right to know what's really going on in the company. Mm. And when they do, by the way, they're often very realistic about what that means for them and how hard they need to work and what they need to do to make the company sustainably successful.
0: You advocate for employee development not just for the high-potential performers but for everyone across the organization, even for the weaker performers. Can you talk about that?
1: Sure. I mean... um, I've been involved with this both practically and theoretically for a long time and, you know, organizations will often say we we put most of our development efforts into our high potentials and, okay, I I get that. Well, guess what? The identification of high potentials is a very inexact science. It's a very inexact science. Quite often we're wrong. They're, They're not as high potential as we thought. There are other people who we didn't quite rate earlier on in their career who turn out to be really important. So, I would say we, we need to be much more eclectic in our attitudes to development. And if, if, you, if you have that view of the world, that, that even those who you identify, not necessarily as weak, but, but let's say you know, not in the top 50 percentile of performers, if you can shift them by, let's say, 15 percent, you will have a dramatic impact on the performance of your organisations. So I often say to organizations, you know, so let's say I'm dealing with some mid-level people in organizations. I say, let's imagine that at the end of this workshop, you are 15% more capable at leading your team. And your team could be three, four, five, six people. 15%, not 100%, but 15% on a consistent basis, What difference would that make for the performance of your organization, small, medium, or large? And, of course, the answer is huge, huge. So we we need, I think, to liberate ourselves from the notion that development is all about developing the elite in in a curious kind of way. Of course, they're the ones who are going to develop themselves anyway. It it may be other people in the organization that we need to really think about ways in which we can help them improve their performance. Mm.
0: Is that rethink the model that companies have had been practicing, oh, not so much lately, but um, calling from their workforce with, you know, laying off of low-performing workers and seeing that as a practice that is just part of the annual process?
1: Well, I, I think it's when you use the word weak, Connie. I mean, I think we need to think about that there will always be people in organizations who are either in the wrong organization, or they might be in the wrong job, or there may even be people who are not capable of performing at a high enough level in that organization. We have to be realistic about that. Nevertheless, there are very, very, very many more people whose performance could be improved 10 or 15 percent, and that would have a dramatic impact on organizational performance. Think about retail banking for a moment, by the way. Uh, I've banked with the same bank for 30 years. I, I've always moaned about it. It's let me down when I really needed my bank to help me. And, and my wife, who's a very well-organized woman, said, I've got all the forms, Gareth. All you've got to do is sign the forms, and we'll open a new bank, bank account. And I said, her, I can't leave now. She said, what? You've been moaning about the bank for 20 years. Why can't you leave now? Well, it's because my bank branch has got a new branch manager. And she's really good. She's tidied up the branch. She's put more cashiers on duty at lunchtime. The point of sales material is tidy. She gives me a cup of coffee when I arrive. Guess what? All the bank needs is 10,000 people like her. It just needs people to do their jobs a bit better. And that's how you'll change your impact in the marketplace. Mm -hmm.
0: Do you see any need for revision of the recruiting process to enable companies to, to find these kind of workers?
1: Uh, Yes. I mean, I think some companies have been very, very good at recruiting people who fit in. And I've often advised them to pick a few people who don't fit in because they become like the kind of grit in the oyster uh, around which a pearl may form. Um, So I'm not saying you should go out of your way to recruit people who don't fit in, but you might want a few because they will they will ask sacri- sacrilegious questions about the organization, about what we do and why we do it, and are we doing it in the best way? And those are precisely the kind of questions you want to ask. If you don't have a clash of ideas, you'll never find out whether you could do things differently.
0: Gareth Jones, along with Rob Joffe, is the co-author of the book Why Should Anyone Work Here?, published by Harvard Business Review Press. He is a fellow of the Center for Management Development, at the London Business School, and he's been speaking to us from London. Gareth, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Read an excerpt from Why Should Anyone Work Here? Go to the Monster Resource Center on hiring.monster.com. That's hiring.monster.com and click on the Resource Center tab when you get there. Our podcast page also includes a transcript of our conversation with Gareth Jones, as well as a special offer for Monster Podcast listeners who are looking to find better. Thanks for listening.